Perhaps nothing about the criminal justice system triggers greater alarm than someone being falsely convicted of a crime. The numbers of exonerations in the United States, thousands over the last 30 years, is disturbing. Latara Smith understands this at both a personal and professional level. She organized the KC Freedom Project, a Kansas City ministry dedicated to helping people falsely convicted of crimes and to exposing corrupt prosecutors. Latara, thanks for joining the Kansas Reflector podcast to talk about your work. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for taking time out of your your busy day. So unfortunately, you are quite busy. I don't think there's any shortage of cases in Kansas and Missouri for which you could uh, devote your investigative time to. So what, in your view, is the reason there's a prevalence of mistakes in the justice system? Well, you know, I actually think the reason we have so many mistakes in the justice system is because I can't even really say they're mistakes. Some of these things that lead to these cases that I investigate, they're not mistakes, they're intentional. And uh, without adequate investigations, you don't find the things that exist in these cases. And I think that is a, a very big problem. If you look at any of our wrongful conviction cases uh, that were just overturned or that are in court now to be looked at, there were things that happened that were not mistakes. They were intentional misconduct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very scary because we know the power of the prosecutor can charge anyone. That's damning in and of itself to people's lives. But if they're going to leverage their power and authority to convict people on on bogus evidence, then that is a scary prospect for people in the community. Everybody should be afraid of that. Yes, it is. It is. It, it, it really is. And it happens all the time. And this is why we really have to consider who we're putting in office or who we're voting in office as our prosecutors. Because if, if they have these power ego trips, then you can best believe and get ready for there to be a lot of convictions that are not proper or mm-hmm. convictions where people are, are excessively sentenced. Okay, just for background purposes, let's explain what the KC Freedom Project is. Well, KC Freedom Project, we're a ministry and we fight to exonerate and vindicate individuals who are innocent and wrongly convicted. We also are a powerful, we are a powerful voice in our communities uh, in reference to calling out and exposing corruption, corruption within you know, our prosecutor's offices within our local police departments. If it's something corrupt that has to do with an injustice, with our justice system here in Jackson County, Missouri, the Casey Freedom Project, we're most definitely on top of it. And we're going to confront it and we're going to confront it and we're going to call it out. And that's what we do. We are a powerful voice uh, for those in our community. All right, Latar, could, I, I believe you have a personal interest in getting into this line of work. Uh, could you run through that story for us? Yes, I will. Actually, my son was wrongly charged with capital murder out of the state of Kansas. At that time when my my son was charged with that murder, I mean, that was devastating for me to get that phone call or any mother to get that call that their child is being arrested and have been charged for, uh, you know, such a, a horrible crime. You know, just looking into my son's case, I mean, there were so many factors involved in my son's case because my son was innocent. And approximately 10 days before he was set to go to trial on a capital murder offense, uh, the state of Texas dismissed the case. Um, And I can tell you that dismissal only came about 
because of me fighting, because of me being tenacious, by me going and, you know, studying law, which, you know, everyone, you know, everyone can do that. But I was blessed to be able to switch my major in college, switch to paralegal studies, learn something about the law, because I was clueless like many people. I didn't know anything. I just knew that I had a son caught up in the system who was innocent. So I learned, I got some training as a paralegal and I worked my son's case. I investigated my son's case. I got in the field, I found witnesses, anything I could do to help my son's case because I knew he was innocent. And there was an attorney who just absolutely, just absolutely did not work my son's case. When we actually got ready to go to court, I had learned how to do a motion. It's called a motion to dismiss and replace counsel. It's the first motion I'd ever written as a paralegal. And I wrote that for my son and the judge removed the current public defender and placed another attorney on the case. And when that second attorney got my son's case, there was absolutely, and hear me when I say this, absolutely nothing in my son's file, not even a discovery. Now that's absolutely pathetic. So that's when I knew that we can have innocent people. Had I not gotten there when I did, my son right now today would be incarcerated, serving life without parole. They weren't asking for the death penalty, which is comes along with capital murder. They took the death penalty off the table, but they were going after life without parole. And my son was totally innocent of that crime. Well, that's, that speaks to the defense counsel's laziness, unethical behavior, but also the prosecution evidence must have been murky as well. So that's both sides of the fence that you have issues with. I wonder if we could uh, turn our attention to uh, an, another prosecutor, Amy McGowan. For years, you've tracked her. She's a former Jackson County, Missouri prosecutor and worked in the Douglas County District Attorney's Office. And she's personally been linked to wrongful or suspect convictions in both states. You've called for her disbarment. Why? I've investigated this particular prosecutor for approximately six years now. And in doing so, pulling cases, reading cases, reading transcripts, reading discovery, reading, reading witness statements. You know, I, I found out that Amy McGowan was a very dishonest prosecutor. And I found out by looking into various cases that she had the same method of operation in, you know, in, in different cases, different cases in different states, but the same method of operation. And, you know, whenever you see that, when I, when I looked into uh, Keith Carnes case and I saw the misconduct that was committed in his case. That's what actually sparked me into uh, researching and investigating Amy McGowan because it was so horrible what had happened in his case. I just knew to track this woman and to, to, to investigate her. And sure enough, I was most definitely correct. I discerned that situation 100% on point. What she had done in his case, we found that she'd done in several other cases as well. We'll get to Keith Carnes in a second here, but let's be more specific about something that's already been resolved. A judge in DeKalb County, Missouri, concluded that Amy McGowan, the prosecutor, withheld evidence from defense lawyers for Ricky Kidd, who was convicted of a 1996 double uh, homicide. He spent 23 years in prison before he was released last year. And so right now, there's a disciplinary process that's been going on that would seek to remove her license to practice law, despite the fact that she retired in 2019. 
I think there was a recent hearing uh, on, on her case. What, what's the status of the Amy McGowan uh, disciplinary action? Right now, the status of the disciplinary action here in the state of Missouri is we are waiting now for uh, an additional day. She did have October 2nd, 2020, which was actually National Wrongful Conviction Day, was the date of her hearing. And uh, they, they didn't get through all of the witnesses and all of the evidence that both sides wanted to present. So the um, OCDC office in the state of Missouri, I think they still had a, another witness or two that they needed to present. Uh, Mrs. McGowan and her uh, uh, attorney who represents her in this matter, uh, Mr. John Turner, had not had an opportunity to uh, present any of their things. So there's going to be a second day for that hearing. And currently we are awaiting that next court date because it has not been released to the public yet. I guess part of your concern would be that she's retired, but hmm, she she could always unretire herself. So therefore, maybe if she's stripped of her license to practice law in Missouri, that could prevent her from doing more harm, correct? Well, th that is correct. But we also did not just pursue her disbarment in the state of Missouri. We also pursued her disbarment in the state of Kansas as well. And okay. yes, her retiring was not enough for any of us because she could retire, still hold her license and go to another county just as easily as she went from Shawnee County, Kansas to Jackson County, Missouri. From Jackson County, Missouri as a prosecutor, she went right over to Douglas County, Kansas, which is where she retired from. So yes, of course, you know, her maintaining that license, I feel, is a big threat to the community because of the things that we know that she has done to secure uh, several convictions that she has under her belt. She secured them fraudulently. She, 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 she occurred them the wrong way. And, um, you know, to be honest with you, both offices, all three offices, Shawnee County, where she prosecuted rape cases and juvenile cases, uh, uh, Jackson County, Missouri, where she served as a prosecutor for 16 years. And then she went over there to Douglas County in 2005. So she served there for 14 years, you know, roughly 14 or 15 years. Um, how many cases has Amy McGowan committed all these acts? You know, did she continue to commit acts of prosecutorial misconduct in those cases? All those counties in these two different states, honestly, need to call a review of any case that Amy McGowan has ever touched. To be honest with you, that's my opinion. And that's how many of us in the community feel. And that's what we're asking those prosecutors to do. I would imagine that if you're a prosecutor who followed McGowan and you're now being asked to review old cases, it's, it's, the, it's the tremendous nightmare of having to go back and unravel some of that. Let's turn to another case, one without resolution. You mentioned Keith Carnes. Uh, Mr. Carnes was found guilty in the death of, I think, Mr. Larry White in 2003. In 2006, Carnes was sentenced to life without parole. But the evidence against him was, was strange. Uh, I think there were two women who testified. They've since recanted their testimony and admitted to committing perjury. There was inconsistent physical evidence. And there are other issues here. I think, I think Mr. Carnes had a solid alibi. So what draws you to Mr. Carnes? Well, you know, Mr. Carnes' case, um, that is the first case that I even looked at. Um, and at that time, I wasn't an investigator. I was just an advocate. 
And uh, I found out about his um, alleged wrongful conviction. Okay, and I say alleged because at that point I hadn't looked into it. Mm-hmm. But once I did and pulled his case, you know, um, as a paralegal, uh, because I'm also a paralegal, not just a licensed investigator, but as a paralegal, I knew by reading his case that some things just didn't add up. So the more that I dug in his case, the more that I requested police uh, investigative files and prosecutor files, I was able to take those documents, break those cases down and find more and more and more things that had happened. Mr. Carnes' case does not just involve prosecutor misconduct. His case involves police misconduct as well as attorney lawyer misconduct. And I mean, the things that I was able to find, you know, there's just not the witnesses who recanted. You know, there were conflicts of interest uh, with Mr. Carnes had three attorneys. He had a public defender and two private attorneys during this whole journey of this, this when he was going to case, going to court for this case. And with two of the three attorneys he had, there were conflicts of interest. And those conflicts of interest, now that we know that they're there, prayerfully will be something that will, you know, help Mr. Carnes to get a fair hearing because he did not get a fair hearing. He did not. Anytime an attorney allows a suspect in your case to read your discovery, how could that be possible? How could that be? Uh, and that's just one issue of the, um, the lawyer misconduct in Mr. Carnes' case. So yes, in his case, I was able to see so much stuff. It's really sad. Could you speak to the allegation that the two women who testified Um, I think they had substance abuse problems at that time, but when they testified, they identified a shooter, not, not Mr. Carnes, but uh, were allegedly pressured by Amy McGowan to ID uh, Mr. Carnes as the perpetrator. Is, is that right? Well, there were two eyewitnesses. One witness, um, one witness was actually picked up by the police, taken in to Amy McGowan, when she went to sit down and talk with Amy McGowan, um, she told Amy McGowan that she had just gotten high. And Amy McGowan asked her, and now this is in her affidavit, so I'm not, you know, what I'm sharing to you, you can actually pull up. The, the witness actually, uh, Amy McGowan asked that particular witness, you know, are you high now? And she says, yeah, I got high a little bit ago. And she says, well, do you have anything on you? And that witness pulls out of her pocket some crack, a lighter, and a pipe and shows it to Amy McGowan. And Amy McGowan says, oh, I I don't care about any of that. Just put that back in your pocket. All I need for you to say is that Keith Carnes did this. Now that is word for word verbatim from this this particular witness's uh, affidavit, okay? Now there was a second eyewitness uh, who has recanted, who actually named the assailant. And she said that when she went to Amy McGowan's office, She actually was shown photos. She picked out the real killer. Amy McGowan pushed the photo back across the table to her and said, no, that's not who everyone else said did this. This is who did this and pointed to Keith Carnes' picture. And that woman said she was so afraid. She was sick. She had just gotten out of the hospital. She was afraid. And she went along with what Amy told her because Amy said, this is who you need to say did it. And, you know, that's really sad. And I also want to go back to the first witness, okay? Okay. This the first witness, actually, though she recanted, she didn't name the killer, but she did recant. And when she went, when the police picked her up, 
and took her to Amy McGowan's office to give her statement. That witness had a felony warrant, had a capious felony warrant for her arrest. So she also shared with me the pressure that was on her by being picked up by the police, transported to Amy McGowan. She's sitting here. She has a felony warrant. So of course she's gonna give in. And then they dropped her back off where they picked her up at. So you pick up a witness, you bring them, they have drugs paraphernalia on them. Mm-hmm. They have a warrant for their arrest and then you drop them back off. And I think about a week later, she was picked yeah. up on that warrant by another officer on another incident. But even those officers, when we found out what those officers did, and this is where I say some of the police misconduct in Mr. Karn's case, those KCPD officers committed uh, class D felonies when they failed to execute those arrest warrants on that witness. And of course, our local prosecutor, Jean Peters Baker, when we brought that to her attention, that those police officers violated the law and they should be should be charged with felonies. She refused to do so. Boy, you know, you've been working on this particular case for half a dozen years. You're, you're, could you tell us a little bit about, I mean, this is a lot of shoe leather hard work, I have to imagine, and convincing people to reluctantly look to the past. Could you describe a little bit about your work? You know what? My work started off with one case, which was Keith Carnes' case, just as an advocate, looking into its case for a friend of his who I met um, at a local Walmart shopping. I met him and he told me about Keith Carnes' case and asked me if there was something I could do to help him. And I was intrigued, like, well, I helped my son, so maybe so. And I pulled his case and began to look into it and thought, wow. So as I began to look into that particular case and I would meet so many stumbling blocks, like when I would request records, they would block me. When I would call to see, you know, try to get in to see prosecutors files and things and such, they would block me. And so I said, well, maybe just maybe I need to get a license and I wouldn't have all these, you know, these these hindrances and all of this, these things blocking me. So that is actually what encouraged me. Uh, as well as I started seeing other things about Amy McGowan in other cases. So that actually encouraged me to go and get my license as a private investigator. And then once I did that, that opened up a whole nother window because I was able to get cases and pull cases without problems and just investigate more. And from, from, from looking into Amy McGowan, I then began to realize that, wow, this is something that goes on here in Jackson County, Missouri. This is kind of a norm in Jackson County, Missouri, because I started looking in other cases that had other prosecutors, but some of the same misconduct existed, which led to someone being wrongly convicted. I mean, it's a it's a working day and night, digging and, and, and pulling records and traveling. I mean, you name it, I have to do it because I know that we have a lot of innocent people in prison. Well, Latera, can you, can you speak to the prosecutor side of this? I'm sure there's there's been hundreds of prosecutors across the country that have been presented with evidence contrary to the outcome of a trial uh, or a conviction. So why do you think it is so difficult for prosecutors, whether they were personally involved in the original case or not, to reverse course and petition the court to release people? Because I just think they simply don't want to right the wrong. In states like Kansas or other states where there's compensation, They know that if those cases get overturned, those people are gonna be compensated. That's greatly gonna cost the state, number one. 
in a state like Missouri, where there's no compensation unless someone who was innocent wrongly convicted and their case was overturned by DNA, uh, they're the only ones that get any type of compensation here in the state of Missouri. So here in the state of Missouri, just from what I've seen, they just don't like to overturn these wrongful convictions because they just don't want to. They don't want to open that can of worms. And also, I have found out, and I have to be very forward and say this, sometimes they know each other's dirt. And if you go to tell on one person's dirt and that person knows dirt on you, you might not want to open that cans of worms. I, I, I've seen that. I've seen that a lot. I, actually, I see that here with the Jackson County, Missouri's office all the time, all the time. And we have to look at cases like Ricky Kidd. You know, when Ricky Kidd's case was overturned, there was no newly discovered evidence from what they had already presented to Jane Peters Baker's office. But Gene Peters Baker refused to address his wrongful conviction, left that innocent man in prison a couple of more years, and it took a judge from another county to look at the same evidence that our local prosecutor's office looked at to say, hey, this guy needs to get out of prison. So why is that? Why is that? Because Gene Peters Baker did not want to address it. She didn't want to address it, as in the same in Mr. Carnes' case and others. You've, you've met these people that are incarcerated. Could you speak to the mental challenges of being locked up while you personally uh, feel you are innocent? Well, I can tell you this. Many of them suffer while they're in prison. They suffer when they get out. Many of them have been diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety. They have uh, major depression issues. They have sleep disorders. You know, as for Mr. Carnes, Mr. Carnes was disabled prior to going to prison. A lot of people don't know that, but he was. And it's not just hard on the inmates mentally. It is horrifying. It's horrible on the family members. I mean, we have women right now. I connect mothers to counseling services and things as such because they just have a very hard time dealing with their child being in prison for something just in prison period but to be in there for something you didn't do is 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 a worse it's it's worse it's worse you know you might see these guys come out and they're standing before the media and they're talking and they're hugging their families and everything is good in front of those cameras but when my brothers go home and I said my brothers because I consider them all my brothers when they go home when they go home and when they're in the bathroom by themselves or they're in the bedroom by themselves, trust me, they're crying, they're struggling. They don't know what's going on in the society that the justice system wrongly took them out of for 23 years or 20 years or 30 years for that matter. I know a case of that. They have a very hard time adjusting. People might not see it, you know, looking at their posts and pictures and videos on social media, but they're hurting and they need a lot of counseling and a lot of assistance and help. And so do their families even receive them back home. Yeah, you make a very good point about the families. I think somebody incarcerated for 15 or 20 years is gonna need some counseling once they get to the outside. You know, it's just a, the world changed around them. And I think the transition would be monumentally difficult. You know, I think what's interesting about these people that are released after wrongfully convicted, Normally, when you leave a prison sentence, you go through classes that kind of 
introduce you to the things you would need to know about getting a job and, and likewise. But maybe if you snap a finger and get released, you don't have time to go through that. So I was thinking that the transition, while you're very clearly excited about getting out, that transition might actually be more challenging. It is. It really is. And and this is this is where I want to encourage, encourage other innocence projects that they really focus on the individuals, helping the individuals when they come out. Because there are more than just financial needs, you know, not just with financial resources, but with counseling resources, with housing resources. And those things are really, really good because they need that. Many times these men or women are in prison these long extensive amount of times and their main support systems have passed away and they get out to no assistance. You know, I deal with, with people who come out of prison, not just in the state of Missouri, but Kansas and Oklahoma and Texas. So, you know, when you have someone come out and especially in a state like Missouri, where there is absolutely no compensation for these men and women who are wrongly convicted, they have even a harder time, at least my brother's coming out in Kansas or Texas or even Oklahoma for that matter, they have some form of relief through, through that, you know, through some type of compensation. Mm -hmm. But Missouri, no, my brother's in Missouri or my sister's in Missouri, they're just left hanging with nothing. Well, that would be clearly a shortcoming of Missouri law. I wonder, we've touched upon some of the reasons that people get convicted. We've talked about inadequate defense, just negligent defense counsel. There, there are false confessions. People get coerced, as the witnesses did in the, in the other yes. case, that there's, there's false confessions or false testimony. And, and that, that touches upon jailhouse informants, you know, people trying to leverage information on somebody yes. else. There must be abuses with forensic evidence. What, what other issues are we, do we have? Like you just said, we have the issues. We have eyewitness issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we have issues where people are in jail and they want time cut. So, hey, you know, I'm going to talk and you cut me this deal and see when that happens. And that's not made known to the defense. Then that constitute what, constitutes what's called a Brady violation because and believe it or not, that happens a lot in cases where, you know, they, they go and they find, and I say they, meaning the prosecutors, I've seen them find the most weakest, frail individuals and prey upon them, you know, whether they're bound in prostitution, bound in drug addiction, pending cases. I've even investigated cases where prosecutors have told women who have their children in child protective services, you go ahead and you cooperate here and I'll help you get your kids back from the state, from Child Protective Services. So when you have situations like that, that's never ever going to be good. So there's a lot of different things. Um, another thing, one main thing also is the fact that, you know, poverty, poverty, when you cannot hire a defense attorney to, to, to represent you and you have to have a public defender not to take away from public defenders because we have some awesome public defenders, but because their system is so crowded, because they have so many cases, because they don't, they can't afford to have individual investigators go out and investigate these cases. And, and, and something like having an investigator at the beginning when a person is first charged, it's very, very important because once they get found guilty and they slam that gap, you know, that judge slams that gavel guilty, life with no parole, 
well, it can be 10, 20, 30 years before they get a chance to come back into court. So I've seen that be a major reason that if they would have just had an investigator at the beginning, if the attorneys, you know, if they're private paying, they get 20,000 for a case, give an investigator 5,000 and work the case for your client. So I've seen attorneys that just didn't do that because they didn't want to pay that money. And then I've seen uh, clients who actually had public defenders and they just didn't have the staff. They didn't have enough investigators. They didn't have enough time because they had so many clients. It would seem like the balance of power there in terms of the resources, both personnel and financial yes. for the accuser and the accused, there should be more equity there perhaps. I, I wanted to ask you about the prosecutors who engage in misconduct, Amy McGowan. Okay, so she retired, she's not prosecuting cases, maybe she loses her law license. But do you think there ought to be something more, uh, something else that would put the fear of God into prosecutors as they go about their work uh, to make them perhaps less uh, willing to convict people who don't deserve it? Well, there's two things. Number one, an awareness group in a community like the Casey Freedom Project who will go after corrupt prosecutors? Who will, when I say go after, let me let me mean legally, paperwork wise. When we see misconduct committed by a prosecutor, or even attorney for that matter, we're most definitely going to pursue and file the necessary complaints to address those issues. Now, secondly, um, people really think that prosecutors are covered by immunity, but I can tell you some cases in Texas, there's been prosecutors who actually went to, to prison, went to jail for that. Because if they act outside of their, what they're normally supposed to do, if they act outside of, of their prosecutorial duties and they go to commit misconduct, then it can't stand a chance that they can face criminal charges. And I think that is most definitely something that we need to push. I think that lawmakers need to get laws in place that 100% will prosecute a prosecutor who commits misconduct and sends an innocent person to prison. Well, Latera Smith, I want to thank you for helping us with our, our podcast today. Uh, she runs the KC Freedom Project and works with falsely convicted uh, and accused people. Uh, good works, I, I think, and, and badly needed. I want to thank you for, for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Y'all have a blessed day.